Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this uh, part of your word, which is, uh, which is hard and which is not, uh, not all happy, uh, we do ask for you to be with us, Father, and we, we pray, please, that your spirit would be amongst us, uh, would be giving us understanding and would be giving us hearts which are right before you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I look back over my old sermons and discover that I have actually not preached on Noah uh, since I was ordained. <laughs> uh, it's been at least 15 years since I found one very, very old one uh, from uh, back before I was ordained where I preached on Genesis chapter 6. But uh, it's not, not something I've done in quite a long time. Uh, and do you think I was nervous? Well, actually, I was nervous as I came to this part of the Bible because it's kind of a bit too hot to handle, isn't it? Uh, Genesis 6 is a difficult passage. Uh, to children, this passage is taught lightheartedly, and it, it's fun, of course, because of the animals. And, you know, in Sunday school we sang, the animals went in two by two, hurrah, you know, and we did that sort of thing. Uh, there's a, there's a, the muddle-headed wombat is a children's story which we read to our children when they were younger. Uh, and in one of the episodes of that uh, great Australian story, uh, the, the animals get caught in this, uh, this cubby house which goes floating on the water and they talk about playing Noah's Ark. But of course, when we read Noah's Ark as an adult, we realise it's, it's a very distressing passage, isn't it? Because it details an extensive judgement. Uh, there's enormous loss of life, both of the humans and animals, uh, this passage profoundly shows the grace of God as well to Noah and to his family and to all those who come after him. And so we, we are going to emphasise the grace of God as we go through this passage as well. But the judgment aspect is difficult. Another reason why it's a, perhaps a hard passage is uh, it, it's not possible to square with science or with secular history this, uh, this worldwide flood of the proportions that's, that's explained here in Genesis 6. Uh, that, makes it, that makes it tricky. Uh, although, interestingly, many ancient cultures had a flood story, uh, and the Assyrians, which is a culture quite close to where the, the Bible lands are, they had a very clear flood story which secular historians have placed in their history at around 2,900 BC. Uh, so this story of a great flood is, is not to be dismissed from a secular history viewpoint. These things are difficult, uh, but I think the one part that I take a lot of comfort and clarity in is that Jesus clearly believed in the Noah story and uh, he used it uh, in his teaching that we read as our gospel reading as a warning as a warning that God's, God's judgment will come when people are least expecting it. So, uh, as Christians here today in Randwick in 2024, uh, we, we're aware of the difficulties, but we take Noah as true as far as mankind's relationship with God is concerned. That's the way I'm approaching the text today. And if we were to pick up the story of mankind where we left it off last week when Adam and Eve were sent out of the Garden of Eden, uh, we find that uh, sin has caught on. Uh, in only the second generation of humanity, there was a murder, Genesis chapter 4. 
chapter 4 also details how we made lots of cultural achievements in medicine, in uh, technology and in music, perhaps not so much in medicine at that point. Uh, and yet, pride and revenge were also at work in the culture at that time. Genesis chapter 5 is one of those famous family tree chapters where there's lots of begetting happening, right? But what you notice is that everyone from Adam onwards died. Everyone except Enoch, that is, whom we could talk about another day. So sin spread and death spread. That is the the sad story of these chapters. And then we come to chapter 6 and we find that this spread of human wickedness had reached such a crescendo that God had regretted making us. Now, as I prepared this sermon this week, those words really struck me. God regretted making mankind. Now, people sometimes say, look, hang on, how could God regret things when he knows the future? And it's true that God knows the future. God knew what the outcome would be when he made us. But I think we've just got to accept these words at face value, don't you? The all-powerful God is here expressing himself in terms that we can understand. And he's saying, look, he was sorry he made us. Now, is that so hard to understand? Uh, I mean, I suppose the question that it prompts in us is, well, are we humans really that bad? Uh, is Is this going a little bit too far? And I think I'd like to say that, of course, by God's grace, there are many, many good things in human life. But if you take a look at the world, you take a look at the nations... You take a look at my heart, and perhaps your heart, is it really so difficult to believe that God was sorry he made us? We say each week in our confession prayer that we deserve God's condemnation, and we ask for his mercy. And I, for one, really mean those words. Now, I confess to you, I can self-justify with the best of them, I can sometimes think that this other person did such a thing to me that I actually the sin that I committed against them was quite appropriate. So perhaps sometimes when I confess my sins, I'm not as sincere as I should be. But do I mean it when I confess my sins? Yes, I really do. I know that God loves me. I know that God loves me. And we're going to say more about that later on. But... I know that God doesn't love me because of me. Does that make sense? Well, we've learned that sin had spread so universally that God was sorry he'd made us. And he decided that he would wipe humanity out with a flood. But it says that a man named Noah found favour with God. God decided to make Noah aware of his plans. And so God explained to Noah that there was going to be this flood and that Noah should make preparations. Now, as I mentioned, and you may well already have known this, there were other stories of floods in ancient cultures. But they were very different from the stories of the, the story of the flood that we find in the Bible. In one such uh, ancient story, the gods, the many gods had made a plan to destroy humanity because they were just annoyed with the noise that we made. 
Uh, and they, they intended to hide their plan from us, but the plan was leaked by one God who was a bit friendly to humans. Uh, and so he, he sort of let the, the Noah figure in this story know about this plan. And the gods as a whole became very annoyed that their plan for killing all mankind had been foiled. Now, if you compare that with the Noah story, it, it speaks of a very different universe, doesn't it? Because with Noah, the story about the one true God, well, the flood comes for reasons of justice and Noah gets saved through God's initiative. God's the one who decides he will save Noah. God told Noah to build an ark and I don't know why the boat was called an ark. You don't see many arks these days, do you? Although there is a a, a pet mining service in Waterloo called the Barker Ark. Uh, perhaps they take cats as well, I'm not sure. But either way, in, in English, we've always called Noah's boat an ark. Now, this was a massive boat, and one of the many mysteries of the text is how such a boat could have been built. Uh, perhaps you know that uh, in Kentucky, USA, there is a theme park called the Ark Encounter, built by some, uh, a, a six-day creation Christian group, uh, one which originated in Australia, in fact, uh, and uh, they've built this life-sized ark there. It's 155 metres long, which is several St. Jude's lined up end-to-end. Uh, end. You would imagine it must have cost tens of millions of dollars to build this enormous wooden structure. How Noah built such a thing, we, we just simply do not know. But Noah's ark, what we do know is that God told him to build it to save him and his family, and each kind of animal uh, when the floodwaters would come. Now we're told in chapter 6, verse 22, the last passage, the last verse of the passage printed for us, that Noah did everything that God had commanded him. And I think that if, uh, if God were to warn you that he's going to judge the world, and if he gives you a means of escape, it's very sensible to do exactly what God says. Often when the story of Noah is retold, uh, they also mention that the people made fun of Noah for building this giant ark in the middle of, uh, of the dry land. Interestingly, the Genesis text says nothing about people making fun of Noah, although I think it's a pretty good guess, isn't it? Uh, and actually, whenever you have Christians genuinely believing that God's judgment is coming and ordering our lives in the way that God instructs so that we will escape the judgment, whenever you see that happening, you also see people saying to the Christians, oh, look, you're being a bit silly, really. But then again, I've also had people say to me, I really envy your faith. So there you go. Well, at the beginning of chapter 7, God gave Noah another instruction. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. And he says to take the animals with him. Now, I love the detail there. You'll need your pew Bible open for this if you want to follow. But I love the detail there in chapter 7, verse 9, that it says the animals came to Noah. Uh, As I've said, there's so much in this passage which is hard to understand, but it would have been even more difficult to understand if Noah had been expected to catch the animals. I mean, if I were building an ark, I wouldn't even be able to get our new dog into it, let alone the echidnas. But for Noah, God worked the miracle that the animals would come to him. 
So they entered the ark the very day that the rain began, it says. And then it says in chapter 7, verse 16, the Lord shut him in. Uh, It's a striking verse, this, because it speaks of God's very personal involvement in closing the ark to keep its occupants safe. Uh, One well-known preacher that I have heard uh, speak, uh, he speaks of what an impression this verse, Genesis 7.16, made on him as a young Christian. Because once God had closed the ark, of course, that meant that it was too late for those on the outside. And chapter 7, verse 17 says, The flood kept coming, and the waters increased and lifted the ark high above the earth. And these verses also tell us that the people and the animals outside the ark perished. Well, there's another striking phrase at the beginning of chapter 8. It says there, But God remembered Noah, and he remembered all the wild animals and livestock. That were with him in the ark. Now the point is, of course, not that God could have forgotten Noah, of course he couldn't. But it's that God's actions are driven by his purpose of salvation. He has said to Noah that he will save him, and, and God remembers that, and his actions are governed by the announced word that he has given. God's purpose all along has been to save Noah and the animals in the ark. And so it's for that purpose that he now causes the waters to recede. And we're told that the waters receded steadily until eventually the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat in western Turkey. And after more time passed, it became possible to leave the ark. Now again, we should notice uh, God taking the initiative. So chapter 8, verse 15, God is the one who says to Noah, come out of the ark. God wants to see the people and the animals multiply again on the earth. He wants to bless them. Uh, and though the, the, the passage as a whole is it's certainly, certainly sobering, it is a very sobering passage to read, but there is this brightness and this uh, atmosphere of blessing in those verses as God invites Noah to come out of the ark and for him and for the animals to multiply again. It's very different from the other ancient flood stories where the gods were annoyed that the people got out of the ark. The God of the Bible, the true God, is a God who desires to bless us. The fictitious gods of the ancient world were often hostile to humans. And, of course, the impersonal word of the scientific atheists, you know, if you don't believe in God at all, well, the universe is completely indifferent to us, isn't it, on that worldview? It doesn't care if we're happy or sad. But Noah knew that God does care. So the first thing that Noah did when he got off the boat was to worship And the way worship was done, of course, in those days is through sacrifice. Uh, That's why uh, Noah had taken seven of every clean animal onto the ark. And so Noah took some of the clean animals and he made a sacrifice. And it says that God was pleased with the sacrifice. And God then promised that he wouldn't again flood the whole earth. As everybody learned in Sunday school... God made the rainbow in the sky as a sign 
of his promise that he wouldn't ever destroy the world again by a flood. Now, what is interesting is that after the flood, sin and death are still there. Uh, The human heart is still sick. Chapter 8, verse 21 almost echoes word for word the complaint that God made back in chapter 6 about the human heart. Uh, There's a little story at the end of chapter 9 about Noah getting drunk and lying naked in his tent. Now, it's not a murder like with Cain and Abel, uh, but it seems to be there to make clear that Noah and his children were not sinless. Uh, this, this situation with the flood had not taken sin away. And so right at the end of chapter 9, if we'd read through chapter 5, we've read that grim ostinato, and he died, and he died, and he died. Well, at the end of chapter 9, after Noah has lived this long, long life, we hear a reprise of that grim ostinato and Noah died so you see the flood and the salvation of Noah have not changed the basic facts of the fall sin and death persist and so what sort of a world is it that we live in today Uh, the world the world that which we could call in fancy terms the post-diluvian world the after the flood world what sort of a world is this that we live in? Well, uh, it's, it's not a world where humans are perfect. Well, we kind of knew that already. Uh, it's not a world where God lets us off the hook or simply winks at our sin. But this is the world in which God loves the unlovely. God loves the unlovely. That's why I said earlier that I know God loves me, but I know it's not because of me. It's because of him that he loves me. It's because of God that he decided to save Noah and his family. It's because of God that the whole thing was was God's initiative from start to finish, wasn't it? The salvation of Noah. God revealed the plan to Noah. God told Noah to build the ark. God shut them in. God then caused the waters to recede. God called them out of the ark and blessed them. And in the same way, it is God who took the initiative to save us through his son, Jesus Christ. And that salvation, of course, differs from the salvation of Noah in that it's a salvation which actually does destroy sin and death. Uh, It's a a salvation which doesn't just love the unlovely, but it, it, it makes us lovely. Because in God's perfected kingdom, we will be lovely. We'll have our, we'll, our sins will no longer be in our lives. Now that's why Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. That's the sort of world that we have, a world in which God loves the unlovely. Uh, I noticed this week, just by coincidence, the Presbyterian Church had Psalm 14 as their sermon text, the same psalm as we just read. And their, their, uh, their notice board says, people ain't no good. Psalm 14. All welcome. And I thought to myself, first of all, I thought, oh, these Presbyterians don't know how to sell a church service too well. People ain't no good. But then I thought, there's an interesting paradox there, isn't it? Because it says, people ain't no good. And then it says, all welcome. That's what the church is for, isn't it? It's for the people who ain't no... We we need to be here, don't we? To seek the grace of God. 
God loves the unlovely, and I'm really glad about that. Now, I think my mum, who many of you have met, uh, I think if she were listening to this sermon uh, here today, she would say to me, Andrew, you're not unlovely. God loves you because you're lovely. Well, can I say it's really nice to have fans like that. And I'm not going to complain if I have fans like that. And if you're a parent, you may well feel that way about your children. But I know my heart and I'm glad that God loves the unlovely. So let's pray. Our Father, we, we praise and thank you that, uh, that you are the God who loves the unlovely and that you are the God who conceived a plan to save your chosen ones through the judgment. Uh, we thank you for saving Noah, but we thank you uh, even more for the salvation wrought by your son Jesus, who is able to save us to the uttermost, uh, and, and that in your heavenly kingdom, because of him, we actually will be made lovely again. We praise and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.